This is Shop Talk Radio, episode 19, with Jonathan Fields. Welcome to Shop Talk Radio. I'm your host, Nick Onkin, and on this show, we bring you inspiring guests to dive underneath the hood of the creative entrepreneurial lifestyle to bridge the gap between art, commerce, and inspiration. Today, we've got my inspiring friend, Jonathan Fields, on the show. Jonathan is the author of a book called Uncertainty, where he talks about turning fear and doubt into fuel for brilliance. I feel like fear and doubt is something that I experience all the time in this career, and learning how to create this shift is hugely important in creating success. I first met Jonathan a couple years ago when he interviewed me for his own series called The Good Life Project. On this project, he interviews people living a good life, breaks it down, and inspires his audience. He's a great sense of interviewing and creating a space for vulnerability. What I really love about Jonathan is that he understands the artist's journey, the feelings, and the struggles that come along with it. In this episode, we talk a a lot of great topics in the space of creative and business, We talk about the gap between your taste and what you actually are producing and creating. We talk about how to push through plateaus in your creative journey, how to deal with the uncertainty of the daily life of a creative entrepreneur, and much more. We get deep and we have a great jam session, so let's get into it. So today we've got Jonathan Fields in my studio. Welcome. Awesome to be here. And uh, we're kind of flipping the tables right now. Jonathan interviewed me, what was it, two years ago? Yeah, you were one of the very first interviews we did for Good Life. That's crazy. I know. That's crazy. And now look where you guys have come. Ah, uh, I, <laughs> I, I, I see where I want to go and I still feel like I'm like a baby here. Ah, oh, but you're making waves and doing Thanks. some really cool stuff. Thanks. Really inspiring. And... Um, it's I've I've been listening and checking out some of them. Like I listen to them on the podcast, but you can also listen on, on the video. Yeah. Um. So just give us a little uh, background. I mean, tell us where you're from, what you're all about, what your yeah. the books you've written, and and all that sure. good stuff. The long sorted details. Exactly. I'll, I'll leave out my time in prison. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Nah, you know I'm a, I'm a New Yorker. I'm married. Um. And uh, I'm a dad to, you know, like uh, the coolest 12-year-old in, on the planet. And those are like the big things that define me. But, you know, in terms of how I contribute to the world, I am, uh, I'm a lifelong entrepreneur with a short kind of a weird stint as a lawyer <laughs> in the middle of all that, which was the aberration. And I came back to entrepreneurship, um, built a couple of companies in the health and fitness world, and mm. sold those, and then kind of moved into... Um, the, the online space and writing. I developed this passion for, uh, for writing, um, and have been building around that. And, and that kind of just exposed me to storytelling, like in general mm. and like trying to figure out how I can, how I can build my craft as a storyteller. And at the same time, 
um, create media, create experiences, create education that in some way elevates people or opens doors or inspires people. So that's led to a couple of different books, one called Career Renegade, which is really all about how to blaze your own path in, in the business world. Um, one called Uncertainty, which is really kind of deep diving into the mindset of creatives, of creative professionals and trying to figure out, okay, you know, like, what's the unlock key that allows the, the people who do exceptional work to live in that place that you have to live where you don't know how it's going to end? Um, without dying. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cause we all have to go there to create the really good stuff, exactly. you know, but it's scary as hell. So it's like, you know, what is that thing that allows you to be there? Is it natural? Is it trainable? And if it's trainable, what's that all about? And then, uh, yeah. And then a couple of years ago, kind of out of nowhere, this thing called good life project dropped. And, uh, it was a little bit of just a nugget in my head. I wanted to start to, you know, like create a, a vehicle to tell stories yeah. of people who are out there in the world just living into life, you know, full contact, fully engaged, service-oriented, mission-driven, and regular people also, you know, mm -hmm. people who've had struggles, people who've had challenges, you know, so there, we've got big name people on there, but we've also got, you know, like the local shop owner and local mom or dad and, you know, because it's it's about human stories that people can connect with and then, yeah. uh, and then to turn around and create opportunities for people to engage beyond that and say, you know, if you want some sort of education, if you want an experience, if you want to come to an event, if you just want to gather, if you want community, you know, we're, we're building all of that too. And it's, it's, it's being, it, it's amazing. I mean, I've put a lot of stuff out into the world over the last 10, 15 years, and I've never gotten a response like we've gotten to this. And then, you know, and then the background, I just keep writing books. So I'm about to start on my next one too. <laughs> no big deal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what inspired the Good Life Project? You know, it was, um, it was kind of funny. I, I was at, I used to write a, a, a blog post at the end of every year, which was like my year in review. And I would look back, I'd, you know, get contemplative and then I'd say, okay, this is what I want to do in the year forward. And, and at the end of 2011, I, I started doing that. And, um, and a blog post turned into this 40 page annual report that was designed. And I was like, wow, it, it just kind of like kept coming, coming, yeah. coming. And at the end of it, um, this thing kind of channeled through me and, and, I, and it was basically like, what's my lens on business? What's my lens on entrepreneurship? That's hmm. a little bit different than other people. And, um, so these, these 10 commandments of, of business kind of just poured through me. And I literally like, you know, two minutes later, I wrote them out on a page. And I'm like, huh, that's kind of different. It's kind of unusual. I, I'll share them. So at the yeah. end of this annual report, I teased, uh, you know, hey, listen, I'm going to start this thing called Good Life Project. And, um, and it's based around these 10 ideas about how to build your living or business. And, um, and, you know, like, let me know what you think about them. And we put them in there. And, and the report caught fire. Um, mm. It got shared like crazy online. But then the 10 commandments alone really exploded. I mean, I've had people, you know, like, I literally, I have at home, sitting at home, um, this beautiful, um, artist rendering of the Ten Commandments that people oh, wow. started sending me just because it and it touched something in them and they wanted to respond. And that launched um, the very first part of the Good Life Project. Actually, wasn't media. It was education. Hmm. And so that launched this, what we call the Immersion, which is this big program where we kind of bring a small group of well-aligned, very curated group of people through this intensive experience over a period of seven to 10 months. Um, and it's, it's sort of like an alternative mind-body business MBA. Hmm. And, um, and that has been just a stunning thing. And from that, that then turned around and funded 
the media that we now produce. So the weekly web show and the podcast, okay. and we're going to be growing <laughs> that. So yeah, we kind of did it backwards. Most people are like, you start out with the media, you build the audience, and you build the programs. And we're like, ah. Yeah, are you still doing the program? We are. This is actually, we're doing it this year. Every year it's touch and go because I, you know, it's like I never commit to it. So um, this year is this a pretty solid chance. I think that it's the last year that we'll do it in this format. But um, there's a lot of stuff that we're working on behind the scenes right now also. And and also, the, I mean, there's a whole faculty. It's like a mini university. So so it's an oh, expensive wow. program. I mean, it's a serious investment. And that makes it that makes it so that the people who are in it, you know, it, it's awesome. But the um, but it also excludes a lot of people. I mean, just a level mm. of investment. So um, I, and I really want to just create opportunities and, and possibilities for people, you know, no matter what your means is. So yeah. we're really we're working hard on building just a lot of new experiences and trainings and ways to gather and build community that are, that are kind of like make it accessible to anybody. That's awesome. So what are the 10 commandments? Like to give us like a more, a deeper idea. Now I'm going to blank on them. (laughs) I've been looking at them so long, but you know, it's, it's things like, um, you know, uh, have a strategy, but be open to serendipity. Mm. Um, yeah, have, and that's basically, you know, people sit there, you just plan, and then you plan, and then you plan, and then you plan, you know, and then you get this amazing spreadsheet, right? And then you launch a business and you just stay linearly. You just like everything that you say you're going to do, you stay hyper rigid attached to the plan. Yeah. And the challenge with that is that that may well get you from point A to point B as fast as humanly possible when you have those blinders on. But the downside is along the road from point A to point B, there's going to be all sorts of stuff that you never saw that mm-hmm. completely unforeseen that drops into your, like just outside your peripheral vision that would get you not just to point B, but to point Z that mm-hmm. would take this thing. And like the idea that you thought was the ending point that would, would 10 X the, the potential and the impact of it. But because you're so linear, just focusing on the plan and only the plan, you refuse to see it. You know, and what I discovered along the way in the creative process, I'm sure you've seen this too, like in your projects, right? It's like you come in with a certain job, but then you hit the ground and you're there and the light's hitting a certain way or you see like, you know, certain, and there's just, there are possibilities that you had no clue were going to drop from the sky. And if you stay totally to the plan, you ignore them and you create something good, solid, you get what you you know, sought out to get, but you don't get what you were capable of getting. Yeah. It's kind of funny. Cause actually that's when I'm shooting and doing it and, and I'm in the moment, I actually like almost rely on the spontaneity, spontaneity yeah. of the moment to actually create the better stuff. Yeah. And I, I'm not as planned going into it. So I'm trying to find the balance between the two. Like, how do you, how do you work that? How yeah, do you find and, that balance? And that's, by the way, that's one of the things that I love about your work is that you can see that in your work. You know, you can see like there's an energy to your work. There's a, there's like this, this bubbling vitality to your work that you just know. Like there was stuff that was captured in a moment. It comes through the lens. Yeah. And that's, and that's, that's where the magic is for me. But it's definitely a dance because, you know, you don't want to just show up with zero planning. Yeah. Um, you know, so, so I'll still, I'll still plan. You know, it's like I'll dig deep. I'll, you know, whatever it is, I'll work hard to try and, figure out as much as I can. Yeah. But then as soon as I hit the ground, like as soon as it's go time, I'll execute on the plan. But I very deliberately keep zooming the lens out and just looking like expanding my field of awareness and saying like and just being open to the possibility that other stuff can happen. You know, it's one of the reasons why when it when we when we film our show, um 
people are like, oh, you must spend a ton of time researching all your guests. And the interesting thing is I, I spend a chunk of time researching my guests. And for some of them, we do a, a very short pre-interview. But I don't want to go hyper deep. And I also don't want, I don't, I don't have a list of questions. The whole thing is largely like, I, I kind of know what I want to know. Yeah. Um, but I also know that if I, if I just sit there and go question, 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 it's, it's going to suck, <laughs> you know, because I'm not, because I'm not listening anymore. You know, I'm just following the plan and I'm not paying attention anymore. And then when somebody says something beautiful, that opens up a possibility to just go completely you know, off the map and explore this story that would just break open the conversation and really, and maybe light up somebody who's listening or watching in a way that would never happen. You know, if I'm just linear to my question, I never find that. Yeah. It never happens, you know? So it's a, I mean, I think it's a harder way to execute on the creative process, but, um, but once you gain the ability to do it, it takes your work to the next level. Yeah. You have to hone that part of your craft in a sense. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, and I think it's really uncomfortable to be there. I mean, it was the same thing. I was, so I, in one of the businesses I had was a yoga studio, right? So, and I was a teacher for seven years also. <laughs> and, um, and which is kind of funny because in the beginning I had no business teaching yoga whatsoever. <laughs> I was, um, but eventually I got trained and all this. And then, and then what was really interesting is, you know, we taught a 90 minute class. And I got to a point where I felt like I had enough control over the craft where I would walk in with an intention. Um, but I was also very aware of my need to read the room, you know, so I knew that I was going to have, you know, like anywhere from 30 to 60 people drop into a 90 minute experience with me. And they were going to come into the room, you know, with energy A. And they, they were, they wanted to leave, you know, it, in a different place. Mm -hmm. They wanted to go through a journey and leave in a different state, a changed state. And if I came in with a plan and just did exactly like, you know, a, a specific sequence and I didn't pay attention to the room, I wouldn't give them what they need. So I would do the same thing teaching yoga in 90 minutes. I'd have a general intention, maybe a thing or two I'd want to say, but then the entire 90 minute flow was, was a hundred percent improv based on me just constantly scanning the room and asking myself, what do these people need at this moment in time? So if you stopped me at any given moment in time and said, what's next? I couldn't, I couldn't tell you. Yeah. You know, but that's what gave me the ability to give them what they really needed at that moment. So it, it's a really hard thing to get to that place yeah. where you're just improving like that. But like I said, that's that's where I think the art is. It's almost like a DJ. Like you're, yeah, you're exactly. creating the space in the room based off the energy that people are giving totally. you. And I have a past life as a DJ. So, <laughs> so, <laughs> I, I was a club DJ in college. Yeah, so it's like all this. It's funny because people look at my path. They're like, whoa, you just like do it. And for me, there's this common thread. You know, it's like I love to create a, 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 an experiential container that transforms and elevates. I love that. You know, and that's what it's about. And the medium, maybe it's books, maybe it's music, maybe it's art. I paint it also, you know, maybe whatever it is, you know, it's about creating that experience. Yeah. So how does that play into your writing process? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's the same thing. In fact, when I was writing the last book, it, it was about, the name of the book was Uncertainty. So it was about leaning into that place where you don't know what comes next. And about halfway through that book, I had mapped out a pretty strong structure for the book. You know, I kind of had like a very detailed outline and I'm filling in the gaps. Yeah. And they started interviewing all these people 
and you know, like some of the top writers and creators and you know out there in the world, and um, talking to them about their process and how that like the really good stuff comes. Mm-hmm. And they're like, you know, the really good stuff comes when you walk away from the plan. So halfway through the book, I'm sitting there and I'm like, and people are banging me over the head with this, and I'm like, I suddenly click. I'm like, I'm not doing that with this book. <laughs> And so I'm like, I, I need, so I needed to walk away from the plan. So it's funny because it was also, you know, I'm traditionally published. So I have to sell the book to a publisher first and they have certain expectations about what it is or isn't going to be. Mm. So, you know, it's this dance where you're working with them saying, you know, trust me, it, it'll be like, whatever it is, it's going to be good. You yeah. know, just please give me like, give me that, you know, that I'll, I'll put my heart into it. You know, I can write. You, like you brought me in because you know I have a certain level of inquiry and craft, and I have the ability to figure it out. You know, so that's um, yeah. I mean that that doing that with the last book, kind of like yeah. Halfway through, I'm like, all right, I need to start walking my walk. <laughs> yeah. So so it sounds like when you're in a client space and and getting paid to do this stuff, you're actually creating and selling your vision and your taste, and then getting them to trust you to create something amazing. Yeah. And, and I think that's one of the, um, something that I think I've, it's, I love the way you phrased that. And it's something I, I really awakened to very recently. And, um, I wrote a post recently. I saw, um, documentary about, uh, Ray and Charles Eames, mm. right? Legendary, um, designers. And in the documentary, one of the guys basically said, nobody hired them. Like they weren't hiring expertise. What they h- were hiring was faith in their ability to um, go from a point of ignorance to output um, and create something extraordinary. Mm. And, you know, and, and what he said was, you know, when you're selling that process, taste or craft or your ability to go from zero to beautiful, um, there's no limitation on what you can do. When you're selling expertise, then you kind of cap out. <laughs> Yeah. So it's a really interesting way to look at it. But yeah, to a certain extent, I think you're probably selling taste, you're selling craft, and you're selling faith in your ability to figure something out on in a way that maybe other people just don't. Yeah. So how would one build that faith for somebody to see? Yeah. I think a lot of it comes down to um, body of work. You know, because mm. body of work, you know, another way to look at it is it's body of evidence. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a great, know, I love that. It really is, you know, and it, and that's, so you do a lot of your own work at the beginning, I think, you know, and it's like, you don't, you do it not because someone's paying you, but you do it because it's your art. You do it because you, you know, it breathes you and you have yeah. to do it, but you also do it because you know that if you want somebody to buy into that proposition, then you've got to have something to show them that shows that you're capable of what you say you're capable of. So you work like crazy in the early days when nobody's paying you mm. to create that body of work, that body of evidence that serves as like proof that you see the world differently and that you know that somebody wants to buy into your process. Yeah. Wow. That's that's so true. And did, well, I'm I'm curious about like you on that process because I mean how was did you do that or oh completely I mean that's completely the way that I've operated my business in terms of doing my own work 
and my own portfolio work to put it in my portfolio, my body of evidence yeah. to be able to get those jobs that, you know, and, and the, it just keeps going, you know, the higher and higher the level of jobs, the more right. I have to actually create that work so that somebody will see that work and then trust me to create it for them. Yeah. Well, I so. mean, what's interesting too, is I had, I had the amazing opportunity to sit down with Milton Glaser last year and have a conversation. And, um, yeah. What was so cool about him is that he, he completely rejects the concept of a style. You know, like the Nick Onkin style or the, the Milton Glaser style. Even though people look at Glazer and they're like, well, he's got very clear sort of like, yeah. you, know, you know his work when you see it. But he hates that. Um, and, he's, and he said, you know, the, the, the challenge as an artist is that once you've established that body of proof, that body of evidence, that body of work, people want to hire you because they want you to do something like that. Yeah, you know, but as an artist, you want to keep breaking the mold and growing and doing something radically different and new, you know. So there's this tension between that. So it's almost like you gotta keep doing that, but then you've got to keep doing your own work, which may be radically different, also. And then hopefully, you know, clients will start to just trust you to hire you, so that even if what you're doing doesn't look like, you know, the body of work that you have in the past, they trust that sense that you're so good that you'll create something extraordinary. Yeah. yeah. Wow. I mean, that's <laughs> Milton Glaser is a legend too. I mean, yeah, oh, he's, um, I mean, just unbelievable. And, and for, for anyone listening, like if you may not know his name, but you know his work. Exactly. And the biggest thing that he's done is the iHeartNY. Yeah. I mean, the most famous and, and ripped off logo in the history of logos. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. So I was also listening to your, your uh, podcast with Scott Dinsmore. Yeah. And one of the things I really want to kind of dive into a little bit more, which you touched on, is closing the gap between uh, taste and what you're producing. Yeah. And where did you kind of dive? Where did you jump in and discover this this kind of this this concept? Yeah, I mean, I I think I've been trying to work on it for probably since I was you know 15 years old, painting the back of jean jackets and making <laughs> to, to make my pocket money in high school. Um, but you know, it really clicked actually when um, a couple years back I stumbled upon this quote by Ira Glass, mm-hmm. and um, you know, famous uh, radio and public radio host. And he basically said, you know, um, the thing that, that really makes people extraordinary in that, that succeed in any world where art is part of it, um, is that you have the sense of taste. And he said, the challenge is, um, in the beginning, <clears throat> what's in your head doesn't come out into the world. You don't have the craft yet that matches the level of taste to let that become manifest in the world. So people can actually experience what's in your head. Like, I don't know if you play any instruments, but you know, like I, I play guitar and I'm a total hack, yeah. you know? And I, and it's the, like the challenge is like in my head, I can hear what I want to play. Mm-hmm. You know, like I can hear that riff. I can hear that lead, but I, it won't come out of my fingers. <laughs> yeah. You know? So, so the work is a in, having that blend of genetics slash work, whatever you think is the source, divine intervention, the muse of that creates taste, you know, like, and there's a big debate over, you know, like, is that, you know, are you just dropped on the planet or is that, you know, like trainable, but that thing called taste, whatever that blend is that created in someone. And then it's being willing to do the work long enough to allow your level of craft to go from newbie to being fully capable of expressing what's in your head at yeah. the level, at, at the closest representation that it is in your head. And that's 
very often a brutal process, you know, because it takes a long time to build those neural pathways and it takes very often years of deliberate practice. You know, this is the famous uh, uh, Anders Ericsson, um, the research on greatness and the whole thing behind 10 years of deliberate practice, you know, 10,000 hours of deliberate practice. Yeah. For most people, if you ask them really, you know, who are at the top of their field, you know, like how long did it take you to get there? You know, it took years and years and years of very, de and, and deliberate practice isn't just showing up and doing it. Deliberate practice is doing it and then breaking it down, analyzing it. You know, like what was good, what was bad, you know, like for you, it's like, you know, after a shoot, like looking at all the pictures and like, you know, what could I have done better? How could I have changed the light? How could I have changed like this? And then like with every shot now that you can do it now that everything's shot digital, it's like you're just constantly, you're constantly refining, constantly refining. Yeah. And it's really, really hard work. And the good news, bad news behind that is that um, almost nobody is willing to do that level of work for long enough to become truly extraordinary at mm. anything. So that's the bad news. This is hard. The good news is if you're one of the few people that pushes through, the field of people is so small that there's very little competition at that level. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So do you think, um, going back to taste, do you think that is something that is innate or can be taught? Man, that's I mean, a you, tough question. Yeah, I know you, I know you touched I, a little I, I bit like on it. But. it. <laughs> I, you know, I don't, I don't know. There was, some, and the pendulum swings back and forth with me. You know, there are times where I was just like, you know, dude, this is talent. It's just, you know, somebody opens their eyes when they're six years old and they can produce something, you know, through a lens or on paper that's just, magic they just they see the world in a way that nobody else sees right um but then you also I, I think exposure to a lot of stuff um as you grow so so the question is i think some people drop onto the planet with taste and it's wired into them from the beginning so um the question for me is if you're not one of those people can you move yourself through a series of experiences that will bring you to that same point? Can you train that? Or can you get yourself close enough so that, you know, you can, you can still do extraordinary things? And I think the answer is absolutely yes. But I also think that there are those rare savants that drop into the world and yeah. they just, they open their eyes and they see colors we don't see, they hear sounds we don't see. They're, you know, so, and then if those people, train on top of that you can't touch them yeah you know? and and i know like i'm ruffling a lot of feathers about you know the bait <laughs> yeah that, that whole debate right now but um and 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 i'm open to always open to new information to be proving wrong to the conversation yeah um but i think my latest thinking on this is that there are some people that drop into the planet and just there's they're wired differently yeah. Um, there are other people, but a lot of it is trainable. I think through environment and exposure, you can get, you can get, you can train your way into a lot of that. Yeah. Um, but you take that person who's, who's wired differently and then they train at that same level. It's extraordinary when yeah. you, when you, ex when you expose to the work of those people, it's just, you know, those people where you just open your eyes, you look at what they've created and you weep. <laughs> it's true. It's very true. And I, and I kind of, I guess, I think I've experienced that in my own life because like I did, I did, I played guitar for a long time and I did graphic design. That was my yeah. previous career. And that was something that I, I would say like, especially music and guitar was something I always really had to work at. Yeah. 
And as much as I really liked it, like I, I don't know if I would have ever, I, I could have probably made it. But when I discovered photography, it was, there was such an innate right. um, sense of taste when it came to that. And it was like, it accelerated everything. Like I really found that that was my passion and my, yeah. my calling. I mean, have you, I mean, with all the various things that you've done in your life, have you seen different things where your level of taste was just like so much higher? I'm sure it was like with writing. Um, you know, it's, I'm still exploring that. Um, I think writing, there's definitely, there may be something there with me. I has, like, I hesitate to label myself somebody. <laughs> so, you know, like got some sort of high level of taste with anything. Cause I don't know. I, this, for the same reason, probably that I, I have a lot of trouble taking a compliment, but, um, yeah. But I, I think, um, yeah, with me, it's, you know, it's interesting. Like, I love favorite guitarist ever, Stevie Ray Vaughan. You know, like I hear him play Lenny and I know the story behind the song Lenny and, and I literally I'll move to tears almost every time I hear th that song. Mm. And um, and there's a video of him playing it live on YouTube. And every once in a while I watch that because it reminds me of that place that people like him go to. Yeah. When they are when when their essence is so aligned with what they're doing in the world that it's just this seamless expression of joy of alignment of beauty of magic yeah. you know and i i aspire to find that level of alignment i can't say i found it yet mm. you know i think i'm still in in the sort of like the exploration of running experiments yeah you know where i'm i'm looking at different things and i i'm constantly creating in different ways um but but i do think one of the common threads is um is st story um, how do I tell stories and how do I inspire people mm. um, to action? Because if you look at almost everything that I've done, it's, it weaves through it. Um, and also, interestingly, um, design keeps rearing ah. its head with me in a major way. It's almost like the intersection between mindset and design. Um, in, in like, I think, I think designers you know, basically rule the world and will rule the world in an exponential way. Yeah, and, and not just graphic designers. I'm talking about experienced designers. People who understand how to create those containers, create yeah. those experiences. Um, and uh, and I've always the one job that I've never been able to give up, no matter what business I've been doing. I mean, um, is the design elements. Yeah, um, down to my last book, I actually um, I I convinced the publisher to have their in-house designers send me the uh, like the Adobe files <laughs> for the cover <laughs> of the book. Because I was like, listen, there are a hundred itty bitty things off on here and I can't sit here and explain it and go back and forth, you know, like 50 times yeah. to get them right. But if you give me the file and trust me, what I'll tell you is I'll make a whole bunch of little tweaks. I'll tell you what I did and explain why and how and it'll make sense to you. And I did it and I gave it back and they're like, yeah, that's it. <laughs> that's awesome um so yeah there's there's something in there that i keep circling back to also you know but fundamentally like if i open my eyes and i'm creating yeah and creating stuff that matters to me and makes a difference for other people um I, i'm pretty happy you know and if maybe one day there will be one single thing where i'm like this is it i'm, I'm open to that um, yeah there isn't yet yeah. Well, I mean, and that's a whole nother thing too. I think a lot of people are wanting to find 
their passion, their authentic yeah. self or what, you know, what really resonates like you're talking about, like what kinds of things are you doing to explore that and, and find that for yourself? Yeah. And, and so this actually goes back to, um, the idea behind like the conversation around, you know, Ray and Charles Eames, which is that actually, I, I think I may have found it actually, to be honest with you. Um, and, and I, because how do I phrase this? Um, I want to find one thing. And I think everybody, even the people who claim that they can't do one thing, they have to do five different things, you know, to be happy. I actually don't buy that. Um, because we are, we're goal striving machines. The research is crystal clear on this. We are happiest when we're working towards something, something deeply meaningful and towards on some level mastery. Mm. Right. It's very hard to do that when you're dividing your attention between five different things. Yeah. But here's the interesting thing. Um, it can be mastery over a process that can be applied to a number of different things. And that I think was a genius of the Eames, you know, the, as a pair. So if you looked at their workshop, they had everything from furniture to splints to, you know, like to buildings to movies, all this stuff going on simultaneously. Wow. Right. Were the experts in any one of those? No. Were the experts in like, you know, had a form laminated wood? No. But they were experts in this process of inquiry to genius. Um, and the mastery is, okay, let me become world-class at that process. And I'm like talking this out as I'm with you here. <laughs> Love and, it. And I think increasingly, like for me, my deep dive is around that process. I want to get world-class at being able to go from zero to extraordinary um, in the creative process. Um, mm. and, and I, I can apply that to a number of different mediums. To me, I'm not actually doing five different things. I'm doing one thing. It's just, you know, I'm just, there, there are a whole bunch of different outlets. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it goes back to what you're talking about, like design thinking. And now they yeah, actually exactly. have like design thinking MBAs. I have a couple yeah. of friends that have gone through that yeah. where it's applying the, the process of design yeah. to business, actually to business and creating brands through that process versus yeah. just like the smaller side of like actual practical design. Yeah. I mean, the firm that's legendary for that is IDEO, right? Yeah. They basically, they're built around that. And when you look at the employees at IDEO, they're not all designers. They're, <laughs> they're people from every walk of life because, you know, this, it's a process that a lot of people have just kind of figured out on their own. Um, and it's also, it's applicable on, on any level, you know, like th their clients are huge corporations who are trying to design, you know, like, uh, facilities. And they're also people who are trying to design products or public works of art or festivals. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, that process I think is really powerful. I'm, I'm a little bit obsessed with design thinking and, and, uh, about to do very likely a much deeper dive into design thinking and, and it's interrelationship with mindset and uh, like how does state of mind affect that too. Wow. Right. Yeah. That's, I love that. I love design thinking as well. And I, yeah. I feel like we could kind of keep digging deeper yeah. and deeper, but you know, so, you know, let's go back to when you discovered writing, um, where, where did that, where did you discover that? So, um, the, I mean, it's funny. I can remember the first time that I actually got a little bit of a nugget that I might be able to write. And I was dating my wife in the early days. And we're together like 20 years now. And um, I loved mountain biking. Mm. Like, I just loved, I lived and breathed mountain biking. And she wasn't 
a mountain biker at all. <laughs> so I remember opening up a mountain biking magazine one day, and they had a story writing contest. So I'm like, and 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 the um the prize was a mountain bike. So I'm like, huh? You're like, what if I won? And then I could get you know like a mountain bike for my girlfriend. And then you know like we we could go riding together. So I I rattled off this story. It was about a ride that I had taken with a group of people in um uh going from like on the Cocapelli Trail, going from Grand Junction, Colorado, over to Moab, and there was some stuff that went bad on the ride. Mm. <laughs> Um, and needless to say, search and rescue ended up out all night looking wow. for two people. Um, and everything ended up fine, but it was you know, like kind of fun, interesting. So I wrote this story. I sent it and I totally forgot about it. A couple months later, um, I get a message from them that like, Hey, your story won. We're publishing it. Wow. And, and at first, my first thing I call back and I'm like, okay, the question I need to ask you is, um, was I the only one who submitted a story <laughs> or was this actually like, like legit okay enough to, to publish? Cause I kind of wanted to know, you know, like yeah. was it was actually half decent and they're like, no, it's actually really good. Um, and that I think was, even though I'd been writing stuff on and off and I knew that in college and in law school, um, if I wanted to get a killer grade, then I would always take the classes where I wrote instead of took the test. Yeah. Um, but it never really clicked with me that that might just be something that I had an inclination for. But that um, winning the story contest for you know Mountain Biking Magazine was actually the first moment where I really kind of said to myself, huh, maybe there's something here. Um, but you know, then I'm in law school and they teach you how to write you know completely linear and rigid and very yeah. formulaic and. And I was good at it, you know, and I, and I, and I learned that formula and it, and it taught me how to think in a certain way. But I also, I could not wait to stop writing that way because, um, I, I don't like following formulas or rules, which, which actually is an interesting conversation, I think, to have because, um, you get a lot of people, photography, writing, painting, illustrating, all this stuff who are like, nah, man. Uh, rules aren't for me. I, I don't want to follow the system. I don't want to get the formal education. I don't want to do this. And um, I'm a little contrarian there. I think actually the people who are the best at what they do, actually they learn the rules and the systems and they master them. And that's mm -hmm. what gives them the ability to understand when and how to break the rules and yeah. then completely go out of the box. Not always. There's an occasional aberration there, but that's been my experience. Yeah. What do you think about that? Am I, I mean, totally off? <laughs> I, I, to the total maverick here, just like <laughs> I am that I'm that I'm that guy who didn't go to school for right. photography. You but know, you, like, yeah, but you also like you went when you decided you wanted to do photography. You went and found people who were world class at what they were doing. Yeah, and studied under them. Yeah, you know. And granted, it wasn't for years and years and years, but you, know, yeah. like you still learned how to do it right. Yeah, and a lot of it was hacking my way through it. Yeah, and, and figuring it out, but it's. I think I was open to more experimentation as well. I wasn't, I wasn't bound by the box of, um, what I, you know, education or what I was taught yeah. to do a certain way. And I've seen myself, I've seen students go through certain training programs, especially in photography and they come out, everybody comes out looking the same, yeah. like same ideas, same concepts, same like lighting styles, all this stuff. And right. it's hard for them to break through that. Yeah. And I guess that's where the, like you really have to have the fortitude. And, and I think probably, um, if you've been, and it's interesting, right? Because if you, if you come out of school and you know, you've been trained, this is the way to do it. And this is the way it happens in the professional world, you know, then to step away from that at that point, there's a lot of fear involved. Yeah. But it's the same thing with just creating your own work, no matter what, because you're like, you know, to, 
to find and express your own voice through your work, it's a fearful process for most people. Yeah. Because that means that you, when you put out a show or like something in a or catalog, whatever it is, you're no longer judged by how good you follow the standard formula. You're judged by, um, you're judged by your, your own, how good your voice is, how good yeah. your lens is. And that's personal. <laughs> yes, it Deeply is. Deeply personal. I mean, did that scare you sort of in the early days at all? Or were you just like, hell yeah, I'm doing it? I mean, I, for me, once I discovered, it took me a while to like make the decision. I was a graphic designer before yeah. and moved into photography, but it took me a while to kind of really realize that, okay, photography is something I want to pursue. Yeah. But once I did, I was like, okay, I'm going full out. I'm going to do everything it takes. I'm going to like connect with who I need to connect with, learn and, and experiment on my own and figure out how to do it. But I think that's the difference between when I was a graphic designer, I was kind of like, oh yeah, maybe I'll have a firm someday. And like, <laughs> you know, I think it's a sense of purpose that, yeah. that really drives. And with anything, you have to have a, a vision and a purpose to put in the hard work of the 10,000 hours yeah. to, to get to mastery and to get yeah. to that space. And I think what's interesting is, um, you know, it's a difference between push and pull motivation. Mm. You know, it's like a lot of people can push themselves to get to a certain place, but it's very different when you wake up in the morning and you're pulled to do it by something that you don't even understand. Yeah. You know, and I think that's the thing that I'm always looking for. And I found it in different places. You know, I wake up in the morning and I, I can't wait to work. You know, people are like, uh, you know, you have to take your vacation every year. And I'm like, yeah, I, I do. And I love to hang out with my family. I love to do this, but I don't need to be away from my work because, you know, I, I love it. Yeah. You know, if I go on vacation, I want to write a little bit every day. I want to, you know, like I look at the world and I, I mean, I'm sure you're the same way. Like I walk out down the street and I just see possibility. Mm -hmm. You know, why would I want to take a vacation from that? <laughs> yeah. I mean, to be able to wake up every day and create what you want to create. Yeah. I love it. Like, <laughs> right. I get up, I'm like, whoo. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's funny. It's funny. Like when you, See people who are, it's like, you know, they can't wait for their next vacation. I'm just like, yeah, there are great, cool things I don't want to do and trips I don't want to take. Yeah. But um, not to get away from, you know, how I contribute to the world. Yeah. Just because they're a part of it. Totally. So when you were, how did you make that jump then, you know, into like, I, I take it you were, you had a full-time job when you wrote that, the mountain biking article and then... You're, you, you know, go from there. Like you, what happened from there? And then like, what did it take from you? Like, what were the fears that you're facing to like really jump off and yeah. like well, go I mean, right full time? Yeah. And, and, and I've done it. Uh, I mean, there've been a number of iterations now, you know, there's like from, from lawyer to, um, from six figure lawyer to $12 an hour personal trainer. And then, you know, to facility owner, to building up a successful, um, training facility and then selling that. And then starting completely fresh in the yoga space where I had no business being and then building a successful you know, like business there and then turning around selling that and starting fresh as a writer and an online creator and a media producer. Um, and I mean, I think once you do it the first time and you realize you're going to be okay, everything changes. Hmm. You know, so when I leave the law, you know, I left the law in part because um, a couple of things happened. Like I had an inciting incident. Yeah. What I, ended was that? Up, I ended up in the hospital. Oh. Um, I was on a deal working crazy hours 
and my immune system basically shut down and I basically had a huge infection in the middle of my body that ate a hole through my intestine from the outside in. Wow. So I whisked into emergency surgery and thankfully everything came out fine, but it was a wake up call, you know, and I, I spent the better part of the next year saving up a whole bunch of money because at that moment I knew I was done. I was, and, and, and the flip side was also that, and this was important, I think, I had no interest in um, where this would take me. So I had no interest in being a partner in a law firm. So if I did, then I would have figured out how do I reconstruct my life so that this is sustainable because I really want where it's taking me. But I didn't. Yeah. So at that point, I'm like, I'm done. So I literally made a list of cool things to do with my life if I thought I could make a living doing them and just started going down the list. Wow. And so, so entrepreneurship was definitely part of it. You know, like wellness, health, fitness has always been a, you know, sort of a deep interest of mine. Um, what wasn't on the list and what's become a bigger part of the list and will become a bigger part is art. And that's something that I was obsessed with as a kid. I mean, I would sit in the corner of a basement with like a swing arm lamp and my grandfather's old, you know, like wooden case of acrylic paints and just paint for days and days and days. Yeah. And at some point I walked away from that and I'm, I'm feeling the really strong Jones now to bring everything full circle yeah. and take my writing and start to integrate that with art on canvases. Um, so that's going to happen at some point pretty soon. That's a 2014 thing. <laughs> but, um, yeah, but for me, like the, the big jump from the law was basically, you know, my body rejected my career. And yeah. then I realized that I didn't want to go. I didn't want where this whole thing was leading to me. So at that point, then you're like, why? Why am I doing this? Now, that doesn't mean that it still wasn't a shock to the system when I walk away from that, the, the job that, you know, like everybody wants. Yeah. Um, and it, you know, it was a shock to my ego. When, I, you know, people are like, oh, oh, you know, one day, well, you're wearing $2,000 Armani suits working at this powerful, prestigious job. And the next day, oh, you're a personal trainer making 12 bucks an hour. <laughs> oh, I'm so sorry. You know, but the reality is I was, I looked at it as I was getting paid something, even something nominal to learn a new industry. And I knew I wasn't, you know, I wanted to learn it from the ground up and I knew it was going to build something. Yeah. Um, so it was just a matter of sort of like buying enough time. Um, and think like back then I wasn't married. You know, I didn't have a kid. Then I'm home. So it's a lot easier to take risks. It gets a lot harder once you get a little bit further into life and you yeah. got people looking to you to provide some sort of sense of stability or security <laughs> or certainty, you know, because then there's a lot more that you have to just really think about. Um, but once you make that jump again, and you realize everything's going to be okay. And you realize like you gain, once you, I think once you gain the confidence that no matter what happens, you have within you the ability to figure out how to succeed, every door opens. Mm. doesn't mean that you're never nervous again. doesn't mean you go into that, you know, but you just, you know that you can step out into the abyss and, you know, like Joseph Campbell's language, you know, like there lies your treasure and you'll yeah. figure it out. You'll find it. I like that. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah. So it sounds like also something you call the thresh. Yeah. <laughs> and going into uncertainty, like give us a little more. How'd you come up with that? Yeah, it's, it's funny because so many people would come to me um, in, in, this, in this stage where they're, they're struggling and they're you know, trying all sorts of different things. And they just, they're like, I just want to find the one thing and, and put all my money down on it you know, like, and just go. And, um, and I, I call that... St that phase being in the thrash. Mm. 
mm. you know, and because it feels like you're thrashing. It feels like you're just, you're trying, you're like trying to get traction. You're trying to, but you can't, you know, it's like you're the crab in the bucket and you're trying to figure out like, where's the hold for me to pull myself out so I can launch over the side and start running, you know, in, in the right direction. And, um, and, and the thing about being in the thrash is it's actually a really powerful place to be if you treat it as a powerful place to be rather than a, as, as a place of implosion and suffering. Right. You know, so being in the thrash means that you're, you, you are in the zone of absolute possibility. So your job becomes to take consistent daily action to run experiments to learn as much as you can about what's going, you know, where's the intersection between what lights you up and um, what the world wants. Wow. You know, that's your job. Your job is not to pick one thing and succeed and build as fast as you can. Your job is to learn where that intersection yeah. is. And you do it by running a whole bunch of experiments. Not with the goal of making anyone succeed, but just getting data yeah. to answer that question. And most people don't want to do that. They just want to pick one thing and run with it because they don't want to be in the thrash because it doesn't feel good. Yeah. But if I found that if you stay in there long enough to like run a series of experiments where you really get that data that says, Oh wow, like this is that, that this is it. Yeah. Then you hit the ground running and you pretty much know that this is going to sustain you for, you know, a certain window of time. The likelihood of you traveling down the wrong road diminishes substantially. Hmm. Whereas a lot of other people who want to just jump into whatever path, you know, jumps in their way as fast as humanly possible. Um, it gets them out of the thrash. They feel better temporarily, but then, you know, like in a fairly short window of time, they realize, oh, this wasn't it. Yeah. And they end up going back into the thrash. So it's mm. this constant sort of like yo-yoing in and out of the thrash rather than staying in it long enough to run those experiments to really find the legit sweet spot and then build on that. Hmm. I mean, it sounds like a lot of like art and commerce, you know, yeah, because totally. you're, you want to do your art. But you also have to make it commercially viable so that you can make a living. So yeah. you're also kind of like figuring out what people want to buy. Yeah. And this is like such an interesting dance, right? And it's a dance that you do so beautifully. Um, you know, but, and, and we've both had a lot of conversations with people about this, you know, and some people feel that you're, you're totally bastardizing and selling out if you're making a good living. And then other people are like, why wouldn't I, you know, like, no, I, I can, I can take what's in my head. I can apply that lens that I feel great about my work. I still do really well. You know, I can contribute to the world. I can make good money. You know, I can, and, and do my art. Yeah. Um, and it's, so I think it's a really interesting balancing. I, I don't believe that those two worlds can't coexist, but I know some people do. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. I mean, it, you know, you get the artists that are, the starving artists that are, won't like buck to right. doing anything commercial. And you have, uh, you know, completely commercial side of things. And I think finding the balance between the two is like where it's at. I mean, that's, that's how, you know, I feel like that's how you create the creative lifestyle. Yeah. I mean, but here's, there's a flip side to that also. And this is kind of interesting. Um, so I, I recently read a book called Daily Rituals. If you hadn't read it, dude, you should really read it. Anyone listening, you should read it. Um, it's, uh, it's basically this person spent, they took something like 400 of the world's top creators, everyone from musicians to writers to painters. And they basically, they, they looked at all of their old papers and interviewed people to figure out like, what were the daily rituals of these people? Yeah. Um, one of the things, and there are a whole bunch of like really amazing patterns that I saw that surprised me. One of them was that um, a ton of people took really long walks every day. So a, a lot of them actually exercised every single day. Huh. But one of the um, 
there was also another pattern that popped up a lot, which is that a lot of them kept their day jobs. And, and they believed that the fact that they had a day job is what allowed them to do the work that they wanted to do part-time. And these are some of the, like, the best writers, the best painters in the world. Um, and they would never think about leaving their day job because they said the fact that they never had to think even for a moment about whether the work that they were cr- creating on their own time was commercially viable, mm. that they, were, they knew they were good. They could take care of their families. Um, that's what allowed them to do really extraordinary work. You know, the flip side is also, um, it doesn't mean that they had much of a life along the way. And um, it may have taken them decades longer to do that work because they were do- spending so little time doing it. So there's always a balancing act there. Yeah. Well, it's also like, I think we're in a new wave, a new generation of like, we all want to do what we love as a full-time job right. and create a, a, and that's a, a new phenomenon. lifestyle. Yeah. Yeah. That wasn't, that, that's an our generation phenomenon. Yeah. I mean, that is not the way that work, work has really ever been, you know, like you look at the greatest painters in the world and stuff like that. And, you know, sort of like, you know, from it, in the past and, um, you know, there was a world of patrons, <laughs> you know, which still exists a little bit, but you know, like not the way it used to be. So you either, you know, you starved or you were supported by a patron. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I, you know, this, this quest to con- combine the way that you earn your living with what fills you up is a, is a very modern invention. I think it's a good one, but yeah. I think it's, we're still figuring it out in a really big way. <laughs> totally. And, and it kind of goes to that space of uncertainty in the process yeah. of, I don't know, when's that next check coming? When's that next job coming? And then, you know, and I don't think it ever leaves. I mean, I, I experienced yeah, I it a lot like this last year, you know, my business has grown higher overhead right. and then, you know, you have to, have to make more money right. to like sustain, but yet that, you know, I have two employees now, like it's, and, and it's grown. So like there is still a level of uncertainty, you know, what's the next step, you know, uh, what's in, how do I refine my process, get the jobs that I want? And it's, it's like this, you know, closing that gap between taste and, yeah. and results. No, and I totally agree. I, I think unless you make a decision that I'm not going to grow anymore, um, that uncertainty will constantly cycle back into whatever you're doing. Because anytime that you just, that you're growing the uncertainty, you, let me reverse that. Actually, there is no growth without uncertainty. Hmm. It doesn't happen, you know, because for you to grow, which means for you to do something new, that means that you actually have to go out there and you, you have to not know how it's going to end. Yeah. So how do you deal with it internally? Cause I mean, uncertainty is definitely like, yeah, I suffer their fears, <laughs> there's limiting beliefs. There's all this stuff that like we constantly tell ourselves, Yeah. you know, uh, what, what's going to happen next? What if I can't do this? Or, yeah. you know, like there's such a language that we tell ourselves. Yeah, it's hard, man. I mean, it's really hard. That's one of the reasons why I wrote the last book was because I was trying to figure this out for myself to a certain extent. You know, I remember, so um, for the yoga center that we had in Hell's Kitchen, I signed the lease, a six-year lease or a floor in a building in Hell's Kitchen, New York, the day before 9-11. Yeah, like wow. married with a home wow. and a three-month-old baby. And, and I remember a couple months in, we ended up doing well. But still, there's a, the first year of a business is you just never know, especially in the environment that we were in. Yeah. And I, and I remember I, like vividly sitting on my couch one day, you know, with my wife next to me, with my head in my hands, just saying to her, I just wish it was a year from now. I just want to know. I ju- just want to like, I almost didn't care if it was going to succeed or not. I just wanted to know. I didn't want to be in that place of uncertainty anymore. Yeah. What I realized was that, you know, my whole 
creative life. I pretty much always created what I wanted to create. I found a way to bridge that gap between like output and taste. Mm. Um, but there was a lot of blood in the water along the way. There was a lot of suffering. And, um, and I, and I wondered, you know, and I saw people that didn't suffer on that level. And I was like, what is different about them than me? And so I wanted to know if it was trainable. Is the ability to go to that place and be okay? Um, to still feel it, but be okay there? Um, is that trainable? And, and for some mm. people, it's just natural for a very small number of people, but it's, it's definitely trainable. Um, by a lot of other people. So I started down this road of, okay, what do you do? You know, so for me, one of my anchors is my daily meditation practice. So I have a daily, both sitting mindfulness practice and just sort of like a mindful approach to the way I live my life. Mm. But that formal daily practice, I wake up every morning, no matter where I am in the world for 25 minutes, and you're like, I go to my special place. Um, And that changes everything. Um, So where, like when you're, when you're doing this, like what, what's your biggest piece of advice to somebody who has those feelings? I mean, we all have like, you know, especially in the yeah. creative entrepreneur space, we all have. So there, there are two things, like the two biggest um, force multipliers to get yourself into a place where you're okay with, certain, with, with uncertainty are um, meditation and movement. Mm. I would probably add a third, which is ritual. Um, but so meditation tends to be harder for people to access, you know, it takes a bit more practice because we don't train our minds. Um, but movement, I mean, there's so much research behind this. If you exercise every day while you're creating, it doesn't just make you fitter. It doesn't just make you healthier. It literally rewires your brain. It changes the way that your brain processes uncertainty, ambiguity, and Mm. allows you to be much, to, to find much more equanimity in that place. Um, so if you're doubling down on a really challenging project, if you're trying to break through, if you're creating a new body of work, like if you're in this studio, you know, and you're painting, you're shooting, you're drawing, whatever it is, and, and you're trying to create like a new show that's really going to break the envelope. Um, most people, the first thing they stop doing, if they were even doing it is exercising worst decision you could ever make, Mm. you know, you, you get out, even if it's walking every day, um, you've got to move your body, not just because it's good for your body, but because it's mission critical for your brain, and your state of mind. Yeah. Wow. I, I think that's, that's huge. I know I've noticed a, a huge difference since I started working out, yeah. you know, like a year ago or well, actually a couple of years ago, like it really helped shift my state of mind. Like there's still a lot of other things that needs to go yeah. happen. Right. And it's not a cure. Right. It, and, and yeah, I think we're also, you know, you're not looking to get back to a place where you're totally calm. I think you need to feel that sort of like a baseline edge. Like you're leaning into a place where this is, there's something happening here. It's new. It's different. You need to feel that viscerally. Yeah. But you also need to build a series of practices into your life where it doesn't cripple you. Yeah. It doesn't paralyze you or make you want to run from it. You know, yeah. you need to find, build practices that make you, so you feel it, but you're okay there. Yeah. And, and being, I think, feel like being uncomfortable it's like learning how to be uncomfortable, be comfortable being uncomfortable. Yeah. And that's where you keep that growth. Yeah. No, totally. In fact, when I don't feel that for any extended window of time, I get uncomfortable <laughs> because it tells me I'm sort of, I'm just hanging out. I'm coasting. Yeah. And it's not, um, I'm not here to coast. <laughs> yeah. I get that feeling when I'm, you know, when I'm in that state of, do I consume or do I create? Yeah. yeah. And if I'm not creating, then I get, uncomfortable now right 
whatever it may be. I mean, but that's a great point, though. Talk to me more about like consume versus create because I'm kind of fascinated by that dynamic too. <laughs> I mean, that's something that I've I've learned. I've just been like experiencing lately, especially with my, my vision growing, my brand growing, and it's like I feel like um, if I'm sitting down and consuming that something that's not like growing my mental state. Mm then I'm not creating. Therefore, I feel, I'm feeling more stagnant, so yeah. to speak. But when I'm creating, I'm feeling alive. Yeah. It's funny. I, I feel like my, I, need to, I need to sort of like constantly cycle between them. Um, I feel like either one starts to stagnate if I haven't done the other enough. Yeah. So it's like if I'm just creating, 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 if I'm in my cave the whole time, then um, at some point, you know, I just feel like, okay, I'm, not doing i'm not creating on the level that i could be creating and it's almost always because i haven't stepped away from the process and gone out and lived and consumed and experienced and had like that that you know life data to feed back into my creative engine yeah to put you know so that i can channel it out into my process um you know but the same thing also like if you're just out there playing all the time and consuming then (laughs) yeah well i think there's consuming and there's experiencing yeah i feel like that's kind of almost like experiences uh i feel like experience lets you gives you more to create from Mm. but like consuming you know like watching tv or you know i guess that's what i'm talking about yeah like more passive consumption yeah but it's sometimes it's great to just like kick back and watch a movie no totally agree (laughs) Totally agree. And, and we have, you know, I think one of the biggest, I think one of the biggest challenges, um, to high level creative output, no matter what field you're in now, and it's only going to get worse and worse and worse is that technology is killing the pause. You know, the mm. best stuff comes when you're not doing the work. Yeah. The biggest breakthroughs come when you work really hard and then you step away and you create deliberate, deliberate moments to pause and, and, withdraw your mind from the creative process and then like those ideas drop from the sky you know we're killing the pause like now every single pause is filled by intermittent reinforced addictive checking of technology yeah you know and i'm not gonna like totally blast it like i'm a luddite like i'm never gonna do it and step away from your cell phone i mean it's a new reality and we just kind of have to own that to a certain point but i think just an awareness of the fact that um it's it's those pauses where your most profound um, creative leaps are going to come from and awareness of the fact that if you eliminate those pauses, you're going to kill the quality of, of potential work that you can create um, and know that every time, you know, you're at a stoplight in your car and, and you feel the need to check your email (laughs) (laughs) that you are taking away a moment that could allow you to function in the world at a higher level to create on a, on a better plane. Yeah. And you're not living presently. Yeah. You know? And so I I think a lot of, you know, like whether it's watching TV or just checking out, you know, like, um, then it, or, or just creating moments where you step entirely away from the work. I think it's necessary too. That's good. I like that. I, I, sometimes I feel like I don't do that enough. I, I I don't also, I mean, and, (laughs) And the thing like my mindfulness practice is one of the things that allows me to much more often zoom the lens out and say, dude, what are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> like, do you really need to be doing that? Like, do you really need to be like constantly fill the gap right now? Yeah. And just go out and it's, you know, it's freezing cold while we're 
we're recording this, but where I live two blocks away down the block, it's along the Hudson River and it's all nature preserved. Oh, nice. There's a dirt trail. So a lot of times in the afternoon around four o'clock, you'll just find me walking there. And I very deliberately will leave my cell phone at home. It's good. That's a good thing. It's not easy. <laughs> <laughs> I could imagine. I, I wish I could just tell you, it's like, oh yeah, no problem. It's like, but it's we're, like, we're uh, so trained, you know, it's just, it's uh, like an IV. Yeah. Yeah. So a couple of questions, just, um, you know, through the creative process, when you hit your plateaus, yeah. how do you break through those plateaus and get to the next level? Yeah. I mean, I find two, th two different things. One is, and it's funny. I don't, um, I don't believe in writer's block, which would be considered like the big plateau for writers. Yeah. I, I believe in, um, liver's block, I mean living and, and research block. Mm. So if I'm writing and I, and I'm having trouble writing, it's not cause I have trouble writing. I write, I, I don't have trouble writing. I don't, I don't really believe anybody does. I think it's because you haven't gone deep enough into life and you haven't gone deep enough into the research that would allow this to flow through your hands and mm. onto the screen or onto a piece of paper. Um, so, so to me, you know, like rather than sitting there and saying, push harder, push harder, push harder, I step away and I create those pauses because I know like the big breakthroughs are going to come when I step away from the work. Interestingly, sometimes that's just through a pause that takes my brain away from it, or I create on a in a different channel, mm. and that engages my mind. Interesting. Um, so I feel like I'm still creating, but that very often will open the gateway from the channel that I stepped away from for the big breakthrough. Wow. Yeah. So like, if I'm writing, you know, like I'll go and I'll do some design work, like I'll or I'll draw or I'll, you know increasingly like I've actually been getting really interested in photography. <laughs> awesome. I'm gunning for you. <laughs> but yeah, so I'll go on, you know, I'll, and I'll, I'll create in it. Just, I'll completely leave it behind and create in another space or just create deliberate moments to pause. I'll go into nature. Nature for me is a huge reset. Um, and there's tremendous mm. research around that too. Yeah. So, you know, like I'll create a literally just like breakpoints, pattern interrupts. Um, because I, I really believe that, the, the big things that let you crash through plateaus are not banging your head against the wall of the plateau relentlessly until you're bloody. You know, it's creating the space that you need for, for it to just disintegrate. Yeah, that's awesome. I love that. So one, one other question, one last question is, what does live inspiration mean to you? Live inspiration. Um, I think to wake up in the morning feeling that you, the actions that you take as you move through your day are deeply aligned with the essence of who you are, that you are doing it in the space of people that you can't get enough of, hmm. and that you are doing something that matters deeply to you and will make a difference in the world. Love that. Love that. Awesome. So where can we find you on the internets? Um, pretty much all over, but <laughs> um, jonathanfields.com or goodlifeproject.com. Awesome. You got a Twitter? Yeah, uh, at Jonathan Fields. Perfect. Well, thanks for coming on. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right. Thank you so much for checking out today's episode of Shop Talk Radio and joining me as we dive underneath the hood of the creative lifestyle. Again, I am your host, Nick Onkin, and if you enjoyed today's episode, then go over to iTunes and leave us a good review so that we can spread the word and inspire even more people in the world to live inspiration and share their inner creativity. 
Also, we'd love to see where you're listening to the podcast. So snap a photo on Instagram, hashtag live inspiration, or tag me at Nick Onkin so that you can inspire other people to listen wherever they are at. But beyond this, check out nickonkinshoptalk.com to read articles on creating the creative lifestyle anywhere from emotional intelligence to any other aspect of creative entrepreneurship. I'll be also posting up editorial content in the form of visual essays that I get to create with my photographic eye and my craft and my career. Uh, But most of all, you get to join the underground creative community that we're creating. So thanks again for joining us. Now go share your creativity with the world. Uh